Imagine you are the marketing manager for Sony Walkman back in 2014. You're seeing sales for your Walkman MP3 player start to dwindle while iPod sales grow and grow. But your product team has developed a solution. They've built a new waterproof MP3 player. This MP3 player and its headphones work underwater. Brilliant for swimmers, surfers, and Londoners putting up with the daily London drizzle. It is a great product, but the question I have for you is, how do you market it? How do you promote this product in a way that helps customers quickly understand the value while also grabbing their attention? Think for a second, what would you do? Would you show ads of swimmers using the MP3 player, say, at the pool? Would you stick up digital billboard ads whenever it started to rain to promote the Walkman? Maybe, but both are expensive and neither are particularly eye-catching. They're also both a little textbook. But Sony, they didn't follow the textbook. Instead, they did something truly brilliant. To promote their new waterproof MP3 player, Sony packaged the product in a bottle of water and sold it out of vending machines. Seriously, the MP3 was literally submerged in water. To get it out, you needed to open the bottle, drink the water, and then grab the Walkman. The bottles were placed at vending machines at sports centres across the country, and this meant they were always seen by their target audience, which was these sporty people. The marketing instantly showcased that the product worked in water, and it captured attention by surprising all vending machine users with this very unusual product. And unsurprisingly, this campaign went viral, with hundreds of articles written about the stunt. This marketing, it seems like a pure stroke of genius. But it is built on a fairly well-known behavioural science principle. In fact, it's one I've spoken about before on the show. Costly signalling. Now, costly signalling means the meaning and significance that we attach to something is felt in direct proportion to the expense with which it is communicated. We remember and value and perhaps buy more Sony Walkmans because of the clear costs and expense used to market that product. Packaging a product in water is hard, selling it in a vending machine is unusual, and this cost makes us value the product more. Today, my guest is Yuri Ganesi. He holds the Atkinson's Endowed Chair of Behavioural Economics at the University of California, and he explained to me why signalling like this works, why your accountant probably won't get a tattoo, how to get more folks to donate blood, and how to get diners to pay more for their meal. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on Nudge today is Uri Ganesi. He's a behavioral economist behind two brilliant books, The Y-Axis and Mixed Signals. And here he is introducing himself. My name is Uri Gnizzi. I'm a behavioral economist at the University of California, San Diego, and my main topic of research is incentives. Uri specializes in incentives, 
and signals. In particular, he spent a lot of time studying costly signals. I wanted Uri to explain signaling to me, to share how costly signals like the Walkman sold in water affect our decision-making process. To do so, Uri explained to me why his accountant probably won't get a tattoo. Right, so think about tattoos. We are watching each other over Zoom now. If I had the neck tattoo, a big neck tattoo, you would have noticed that and made some assumptions about me, about me right? So you would have thought that I'm cooler than I am and maybe some other stereotypes would come to mind. And because of that, it's really a costly signal. So um, imagine the, the story that I tell in my book is about my accountant. It was accountant in the US, you know, they have this deadline where everyone has to submit their taxes, which is horrible for them, but then they can take a break, right? So I asked him, how, how does he survive this uh, April 15 deadline? And he basically pointed to the wall of his office where he had pictures of him and his buddies on the motorcycle. And basically he told me, look, we're going around. And then I thought, look, this guy is a big guy, tall guy, but uh, bald, you know, so he has all the features that you would say would make him cool. But it was clear that he's not cool. He's, he's an accountant, right? He's like me. And uh, I think that, and then I thought, you know, they can buy all the gear. They can buy the motorcycle, the leather jackets, the boots, everything. But they will never have tattoos, the, the real tattoos that you need in order to be a cool uh, hell ride, right? Because imagine my imagine me entering the office with a new accountant and seeing that he has a big neck tattoo, right? Many of us, maybe I'm not, maybe others will, will be worried by that. Right? So the, I don't. I want my accountant to be a boring person. I don't want him to be an exciting person. And because of that, it's, it would have been very costly for him to have it. And bec- and that's why he cannot really pretend to be a real biker. The real bikers do it, and then they block themselves they, from a lot of professions, a lot of things that other people can do in their life. And because of that, it's costly for them. And because of that, it's a credible signal. You can really believe that that's who they are. They're not pretending. They're not doing it for two weeks a year. Incurring significant costs can signal your commitment. Uri's accountant loves his motorcycle, but he'll never be accepted into the biking community like the hardcore bikers are until he incurs more costly signals. To do so, he would need to quit his accounting job. He'd need to spend months cruising from state to state on his Harley. He'd need to grow a a whispery beard and, and get a neck tattoo. Of course, it's never as black and white as this, but Uri makes a good point. To be truly accepted into a community, you need to make a costly signal. Accountants need to pass the CPA exam, and Hell's Angels members need to get a neck tattoo. This isn't just Uri's gut instinct. There is evidence to back this up. Incurring extra cost does indeed change perception. One great study from the Journal of Marketing Research, which was shared last year, shows just this. The 12-part study conducted by Sunjin and Dubois involved analysing thousands of clicks on different Facebook ads, some shown in slow motion and others shown at normal speed. They found something very surprising. People said they would pay 11.4% more for wine when they were watching the slow motion version of the ad than watching the regular version. So you're shown uh, an ad for wine and somebody else is shown another ad for wine. They're the same ad, but one is in slow motion. And when you view the slow motion version, you are more likely to buy, you are more likely to pay more. 
That's not all. A Facebook ad for artisan chocolate had 17% more clicks when it was shown in slow motion as well. The researchers speculated that costly signalling was involved. Recording in slow motion, well, it simply costs more to do. It is harder to do. And when viewers see this, they subconsciously value it more. But enough of my speculation. Let me hand back to the expert on costly signalling and get his explanation on how it works. It's uh, a bit like the tattoos. It's not something that I can pretend to be that easily if I do it. So imagine that I want to signal to you that I'm very smart. I'll go and take, uh, I don't know, I'll do an undergrad in physics at a good university. That's a signal that I'm smart, right? Even if I learned nothing that is important for you, you know, you're interviewing me about incentives. It has nothing to do with physics. But the fact that I was able to finish physics at MIT, which I would never be because I'm not smart enough, but in a, in an imaginary world in which I would, you would know that I'm very smart, right? Without uh, doing this, and I cannot I cannot get even a, an undergrad in physics at a good place, let alone a Nobel Prize. So that's why, if they can get it, that's a signal that they are smart. Degrees are fantastic examples of costly signals. By dedicating years of your life to studying a subject and thousands of dollars on your studies, you signal to employees your commitment and your expertise. Here's an example. If your hairdresser tells you that they've trained for 25 years in Italy's best hair salon, your perception of your haircut might change. You'd probably value that haircut much more. You'd probably pay much more compared to the exact same haircut from your local barber. But how about a real-world example? Well, Uri explained to me how costly signalling helped Toyota win the hybrid car market. Here's how. So the late 90s, early 2000s, the first hybrid cars hit the market, and Toyota and Honda were the two big players in this. Now, the, the funny thing is that the first hybrid cars were really bad cars. They were bad in the sense that for the same price, you could have gotten a much better car, or you could pay less and get a better car. In most cases, when you come up to the market, come to the market with a bad product, you're not going to be successful. But in this case, it was actually great for them because if I care about the environment and I want to signal to other people that I care about the environment, I can buy a hybrid car back then in the early 2000s. I could buy a hybrid car. And then everyone would know that, wow, Uri, you're a good, uh, good guy. You care about the environment. You're, you really show it, right? You're willing to drive this bad car. And that, that's a very strong signal. So surprisingly, they benefited from the fact that their car was not great. But that wasn't enough, because if you look at the outcome, you see that Honda basically lost the battle to the competition to Toyota. And why? Honda came up with a car that was based on Honda City, a car that there are millions of cars of it already out there. And they probably, the engineers told them, look, that, that will be the easiest way to do it with the supply chain and everything. We just uh, base it on an existing car, change the engine, change a few things, but that's good. But then when you entered the parking lot in your in your uh, work, you would enter with a, at the end of the day with Honda Civic, right? So no one would know that you're driving a hybrid car and that you're a good person, right? You're wasting the signal. Toyota did a very smart thing. They came up with the Toyota Prius that we all know is a hybrid car. It looks differently than any other car that we saw. And by doing that, people who entered the parking lot could signal to all their friends, look, I'm a good guy. I'm driving a hybrid car. 
And the, the, that was the power of signals in this case. So the fact that the car was bad and that Toyota came up with something really distinct that enhanced the, the, the power of the signal. And because of that, according to everyone, including the CEO of Honda, that's why Toyota won them. People bought Toyotas not because it was a better car, but because it made a clear signal about the buyer's environmental principles. The Honda hybrid looked like a normal fuel-guzzling Honda Civic, but the Toyota Prius, it looked different. It signalled the driver's environmental concerns. This isn't just hearsay. In 2007, the CNW marketing research paper studied Prius buyers. The study found that 57% of buyers said they bought the Prius because it makes a statement about me. That was easily the main reason customers bought it. It was way ahead of the other reasons. The second was that 36% of people said they bought it because of the fuel economy and only 25% of people chose it for its low emissions. Prius enjoyed more success than other hybrid cars because its design made it clear to everyone that they were driving a hybrid. This signal mattered more to buyers than the actual reduction in the emissions the car offered. You don't have to look far for other examples of this. People pay thousands for handbags from Prada, not because of the quality, but because of the signal it displays. Lawyers dress up in sharp suits to signal their competence, and marketing executives wear beanies and shirts to signal their creativity. And most of the purchases we make are in part due to the signal that the product will give off. All right, so we've covered costly signaling. We've looked at why tattoos are a costly signal. We've understood how Toyota won the hybrid car market and why slow motion ads perform better. After the break, we'll go a bit deeper. Uri will explain to me the difference between social signaling and self-signaling and why we shouldn't pay blood donors for their donations. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to the show. So everything we've covered up until now has been about social signaling, the signals I give off to change how others perceive me. Now, I assumed this social signalling was a new thing, but I was dead wrong. Social signalling has been part of our society for millennia. In fact, fashion signalling was legally enforced by the Roman Empire. Dan Ariely writes in his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, how Roman law dictated who could wear what according to their station and their class. The laws went into extraordinary detail. For example, in Renaissance England, only the nobility could wear certain kinds of fur and fabrics and lace and decorative beading, while those in the gentry could wear decisively less appealing clothing. 
Prostitutes, for example, had to wear striped hoods to signal their impurity, and heretics were sometimes forced to don patches decorated with wood bundles to indicate that they could or should be burnt at the stake. Clothing has been a social signal since civilizations began. But Uri was keen to tell me that social signalling is not the only type of signalling. In fact, it's not even necessarily the most powerful type of signalling. There is another type called self-signalling. Here's Uri to explain the difference. So social signalling is like we, like I discussed with the Toyota case, right? You signal to other people what you are, and that's easier, easier to understand. Self-signalling is, is a bit deeper and a bit more confusing because basically what it says is that I don't really know how good of a person I am. I have some some notion, I, I know what I want to be, but I'm not really sure. And I actually look at my actions and learn from my actions about myself, right? So if I did something good, I say, ah, oh, you're a great guy. If I did something bad, I say, well, you, you should do better in the future. So, so let me give you an example. So imagine that, uh, let's stay with the environment. You see your neighbor going to the recycle center with a large bag filled with 100 soda can. And say on a let's make it dramatic on a cold day on the ice, right? What are you going to think about her? She's a cool person, right? She's she cares about the environment. She's great. She could have trashed the, the cans, she chose to do that. She's probably going to feel the same about herself, right? So she would say, Look, I'm a good person. I didn't just throw it, I really care about the environment. Right? So that's the self-signaling part of it. So social signaling is what others think about you, self-signaling is what you think about yourself. If you decide in the privacy of your own home to scrub your tins and plastic clean of all the food to make sure it is perfect for recycling, then you're not signalling to anyone else socially that you're a good, environmentally friendly citizen, but you are signalling it to yourself. This signal reinforces a view you have of yourself. But Yuri says self-signalling gets really interesting when incentives are brought in. And the interesting part is really the interaction of this with incentives. Because imagine that the same scenario, you have the same scenario, but now it, the city introduces a 10 cent incentive for every soda can that you recycle. Again, the same story. You see your neighbor going to the recycle center. Everything is the same. But now you're going to say, oh, she must be cheap for $10, really? She collects all these soda cans and instead of just throwing them away, goes all the way in the snow and ice, whatever. So you're changing your perception about why she's doing this because of the introduction of the incentive. And she can also change the, her perception of why she's doing it. Before that, she thought that she's doing it because she's a great person. Now she'll say, well, it's only 10 cents per soda can. It's not worth it. This leads to an interesting thought. See, most of us presume that to encourage people to complete an action, we should pay them. To get people to work, we should give them a salary. In Europe, many recycling centres pay people a small fee for returning glass bottles. In the US, many people are paid to donate the plasma in their blood. But is this a good idea? Does it actually encourage people to complete that action? Or does it conflict with the self-signal we have of ourselves? I asked Uri. Now, if you look at the market, there is a shortage of blood. There is uh, the blood, blood bank, uh, the hospitals, everyone needs more blood. And there's, it's a real business. So hundreds of millions or billions of dollars are changing hands with it. So the simple solution is give, give the donors uh, money and they will give more blood. But then you run into the same story as with the soda. If you'll give me $50 for donating blood, 
I will think that I'm doing it because I'm cheap. And then I'll say, well, for $50, I'm not going to waste half a day. Right? And I can't show off to other people because they're going to think that I'm cheap. But you can find other ways. That's a good place where you can think about alternatives to compensating people. So you can give me $50 and say that that's to pay for Uber. Okay, then, then it's fine. Then it's not bribing me. That's, then it's fair, right? Then it's not. Even nicer, you can give me a coffee mug with a blood bank uh, logo on it. I don't need another coffee mug. It definitely costs less than $50. But then every morning I can drink coffee from it. And when I'm zipping my coffee, I can say, wow, Uber, you're a great guy. You donated blood. And I can take it to the meeting, put it on the desk, and everyone will see that I donated blood, right? So I can get these kind of benefits of signaling uh, with the right incentives. And that's, I think that that's a really important lesson that the right incentive, money is not, is not always, and actually in many cases, it is not the best incentive. Paying people to donate blood probably would decrease the number of donors. Why? Because it changes how we perceive the act. Rather than thinking of ourselves as good people, doing something for others when donating, we'll think of ourselves as doing it for a bit of cash. Rather than others perceiving us as kind, generous people, they'll view us as needing a bit of spare cash. Signals can dramatically influence how we act. Changing a signal by giving an incentive in this example can dramatically change the action. Now, if all of this sounds a bit hypothetical to you, then hold on. There is a brilliant study conducted by Uri that truly shows the power of self-signaling in action. I'll hand back to Uri to introduce the study. We we teamed up with a restaurant in Vienna that's close to a university. It's a Pakistani buffet. People come there to eat. The interesting part about it is that it's based on something that is called pay what you want, which I worked on, on in other papers. But the idea is that at the end of, the, of lunch, you decide how much you want to pay. So the, the regular way in which they did it is that at the end of lunch, the, each, each person would pay the waiter whatever they felt is the right amount. Now, you can think, why would anyone pay? They, they can pay zero. So it turns out that most people paid. And on average, they paid about six euro, which was enough for the, for the restaurant to be profitable. Now, why are they paying? You can Think about uh, signaling to others, right? So they, they don't want the waiter to think that they are jerks. So they, they give some money. And maybe also they get some self-signaling from being doing the right thing. But it's hard to think about this separately. So what we thought about, let's let's do another treatment. So let's use the, this as a control where they pay the, the waiter. And have another treatment in which they just put the money in an envelope, seal the envelope, and put the envelope at the exit in a box at the exit of the restaurant. This way, I can tell how much each customer paid. At the end of the day, I can tell you how much we we received from each customer, but I cannot, it's anonymous. I don't know how much you paid. So now if the explanation is that I don't want to look like a jerk, like a jerk then I don't have any reason to, to give money. The, the social signaling is basically lost. But what happened now is that now I'm really thinking, oh, okay, I'm an, I want to be a nice person. How much would I give? And then you start thinking in a very different way. Instead of, of thinking, how much do I have to give in order for the waiter to like me? Now you think, how much do I have to give in order to feel good about this? And what we found is that people paid a bit more. They paid about, about seven euros, if I remember correctly, on average. And when they put the money in the envelope, no one saw how much they put. And the explanation that we have is that that's the self-signaling. The self-signaling got pure, if you like. This study really surprised me. 
I've known about signalling for years. I've read dozens of studies about the bias and I've always assumed that public signals are stronger than internal ones. So I assumed that people would pay more for the meal when others could see what they pay. We want to signal our generosity. We want to signal our wealth. So being able to show our payment should increase the amount spent. But it doesn't. Uri found that people donated more when the payment was private. It's an important point. Self-signals, the signals that influence how we view ourselves, can be more powerful than public signals. Here's another example of the same concept from Uri. Think about uh, when you're in a hotel for three nights. The first morning you can leave money to the the cleaning person and you might do it because you're a nice person or because you think that they will clean your room, tidy up your room better. Second night, second morning, the same. The third night, the third morning, just before you check out, if you leave money, then that's going to make you feel much better about this. You're just doing this out of pure, you being a very nice person. People paid more for their meal when their payment was private. It's a really interesting takeaway. And it makes me wonder, would fundraising pages get more payments if all their donations were private? Would Instagram accounts get more engagement if all their followers, likes and comments were hidden? Would public transport providers like buses get just as much, if not more, payments if the payments were private and voluntary? Now, I'm not 100% sure any of this would happen, and it is interesting that there is some evidence to suggest this might work. Now, clearly, I have undervalued the power of self-signaling. I've always assumed we act to mainly signal something to something else. But Uri's shown me how the opposite can be true. Now, we have only scratched the surface of the power of signals today. As you can imagine, there is heaps we haven't had time to cover. But if you are looking to learn more, I'd recommend checking out Uri's book, Mixed Signals. It explains the concepts of self-signaling, social signaling, but also much more about his famous studies on incentives. It's a really good read, and I've dropped a link to it in the show notes. Now, we've all heard about the power of a self-signal today, so let me ask you to consider this. Do you see yourself as an intelligent individual? Do you see yourself as someone keen to keep up to date on all the latest insights in the world of psychology and behavioural science? Well, if that's how you view yourself, then maybe you should consider signing up to my newsletter. I send it once a week, every Friday, with some of the best insights I've found from the world of behavioural science. To sign up, head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. That is all for me this week. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew. Please do subscribe to Nudge wherever you listen, and I'll be back next week for another episode. Cheers for listening.